1: Welcome to Chopping It Up. I'm your host, Mike Halen, the Senior Restaurant and Food Service Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Today, we're joined by Barry McGowan, CEO of Fogo de Shone. Happy belated birthday, Barry.
2: Oh, gosh. Thank you. Appreciate it, Mike. So glad to be uh, part of Chopping It Up. Big fan of your uh, your work, so thanks for the kind invite.
1: Yeah, I- I'm excited to have you. How did I do with the pronunciation?
2: You, you did really well. Your Portuguese is a little bit more Fogo de Chão. Oh, would they show them but you're getting there? I, I would say you'd convince anybody from Brazil you, you're you from Brazil, so that's very good.
1: <laughs> so uh, working for uh, FOGO, have you, has it made you more of a, a fan of soccer and, and uh, mixed martial arts?
2: Oh, we will tell you, uh, yes. And I'd say I'd, I've always been. So I grew up in Europe, born in Germany. I, I'm a naturalized U.S. citizen from Ireland. So I would say I'm an Irish gal show, but I've always loved football, real football. And uh, yes, I would say uh, mixed martial arts even more, more than ever before. Obviously, we have a lot of uh, regulars who mix martial arts based off that. They always come in. So Cool. Yes. The answer is yes.
1: Very cool. Uh, and um, y'all, you know, LinkedIn told me it was your birthday. It also told me that you worked for Norman Brinker, which I did not know. How I was working for Norman? Oh,
2: I'd say he was uh, prior to Norman, uh, I worked for McDonald's, an owner-operator, that just inspired me. I was really young, fifteen years old, turning you know, sixteen, and thought one day I'd own my own McDonald's. And then uh, got into the industry, read press, and read about this gentleman named uh, Norman Brinker. So he opened uh, a Chili's in Denton, America. We call it Denton, America, Denton, Texas. But um, and I just basically wanted to work for Chili's at the time because I knew of him. And I tell you what, a transformational leader, inspiring guy, still. I would say a lot of the culture attributes thing that I believe are really important. Uh, we learned from Norman and his culture, Doug Brooks and the whole Brinker Day. So, yeah, love, love my time with Brinker International. And I have to say I've, I met the man, got to sit in a room and listen to him speak. And uh, still very much uh, part of, I would say, the culture that I believe in, in terms of our industry, the things that matter most. So
1: Yeah, he was uh, an iconic leader. That's very cool. Yep, sure was. Sure was. Uh, so Fogo, uh, it's had an impressive track record of generating positive traffic in the last decade. So if you could talk a little bit about what's, what's fueling the gains and you know, the, the uniqueness of, of Fogo Deshaun.
2: You bet. So you know, we just finished the ninth uh, year, Mike, of traffic, which is, as you know, is a very, a very big thing in our industry. So taking share is critical, but how you do it matters as well. So again, this brand's 45 years old. We've been in the U.S. for 26 But we set out 11 years ago joining was just, you know, looking at the consumer that used us and then really asking our FOGO fanatics how they FOGO and just unlocking that to say, well, how do we make FOGO and understanding how to die in this unique uh, differentiated concept uh, for more people to drive occasions, trial, and of course, frequency. So I just say this, it was built just on really deliberate small things, but most important thing was just hospitality up front, never sacrificing labor, focusing on our biggest investment every day is labor, not an expense. So changing the mindset to hospitality begins with being staffed, well-trained, and keeping the guest focus in mind all the time. So I just say we've just leaned into uh, the fundamentals of that and then really created uh, occasions for people who've heard about us to try us, giving entry points, price optionality, day parts, and you know little things like happy hour. Instead of doing it three to six, we just say it's happy hour all day long at Fogo. Let's give our guests value all the time. And by the way, we always believe in it. I still believe today value is always critical. And even the last four years, when you looked at some of the uh, analyst reports that you shared and others have talked about pricing, you know, last four years is pretty steep. Uh, on a you know, up to 22, we we averaged about 10% price uh, from 19 to 22. We're uh, about maintaining that going through you know 23. So we're about two and a half percent price per year, even through the toughest time. And if you look at the industry at over 30% during that time, it goes back to the guest is always going to uh, appreciate value. Now doing that and maintaining margin while driving positive traffic is what we've been able to achieve and that's the uniqueness to our operating model. But the most important thing to us, the first metric we focus on is traffic. Then we think about mix with our innovation and then we look at price last. We never, we never focus on price. The very last thing we'll do. Um, So that's kind of how we got here, put it that way. And I'll just say this too, and you know, this Michael, you've been around, you, you know, we were small, now we're building restaurants. Uh, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, we had one market with multi-units, and that was Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, now in the U.S., we have 12 markets where we have multi-units. So awareness is growing, trial is growing, and frequency is growing all at the same time. So that tailwind goes back to brand building. And I would say this for our operations team and every GM is executing. The moment of truth is every time the guest drives up to your parking lot. So that's where we, we're really focusing on, again, to continue to, make sure the guest wins all the time.
1: Yeah. So you're in an enviable position for sure. And you touched on a few topics uh, that I'd like to hit on today for sure. So uh, I guess one of them was, you know, let's just start about talking about 2023. You know, it wasn't a great year for a lot of your competitors. Traffic fell. There was a mix shift to less expensive items. Did you see some of that in your business?
2: Well, we, you know, we see, we saw a shift. I go back, some of it was normalization, you know, going through the curve of, you know, excess to uh, working at home to people coming back to work, also just normalize school, travel, all those things. So some of that, I think we were expecting. Now we were lapping big numbers, I would say bigger than peers, but we still cut through it and basically ended the year positive in traffic and revenue. And even with the inflationary pressure, more inflation last year, Uh, We did a lot more work internally with new product, mix shift. We didn't uh, contract down. We stayed nimble with 30-day rolling. And we're able to really pick up overhang and do select different cuts. Same thing with our market table. Basically, our margin in 23 was the same as it was in 2019 with only 2.5% price carry, which was, I think, a testament to the team, the uniqueness to operating model that we're able to do both. So I would say everybody faced the same, I would say, adjusting. Uh, And I tell everybody, you know, why traffic's important. When you have capacity gains during COVID, you know, the capacity gains when people were coming in shoulder periods because they weren't working or staying at home, their, their schedules changed. Now, as you see that shift, you know, demand for peak areas are the same. So good news is we have capacity internal and we have the place to keep building on that. But uh, it was a challenge, to be honest. It was adjustment. And I would say the last four years have been adjustment. As you know, you're reporting to it. But I, I go back to now we're back in the, the, the whole basis of the consumer is at the forefront. And you hear everybody talking about, I can't take as much price. A lot of people are going to have to roll off a pretty big price. Yeah. Um, so we're very grateful that we 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 thought long you know we weren't thinking about the short term and even during the pandemic and you and i've talked about this you know we always told everybody look the pandemic's going to end let's don't make decisions based off the crisis in front of us always make sure you're you know you're thinking beyond the issue and that paid off the same thing with pricing we 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 believed ultimately inflation would be between two and three percent long term and uh, we just got to stay in that range, or we would give it up somewhere else. And what we don't want to ever give up is traffic. We never want our value proposition to be out of out of play. And I do believe why we finished 13 or 223 strong is our value proposition during those four years actually strengthened. It got better with our peers. Our, price, our PPA spread between peers went from about a 20 percent spread to close to 30. So we kept holding on that, knowing that. And by the way, we're challenged. Can you take more price? And we just say, you know, let's hold, let's be smart with it. And it also challenged us to work harder on our leaning harder into our model about how much more value can we give the guests, but maintain margin. And um, uh, that's what I call real innovation and real creativity on the culinary side. And I'm really proud of our team for all the work they did to achieve that. So,
1: All right. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, the service model, when you look at the S1 uh, that you filed in the past, right, that the labor... Um, you know, labor costs is, really stick out uh, in terms of, you know, outperforming your peers. So if you could talk a little bit about the service model and um, what it does for your PL.
2: Sure. So it's all based and rooted in a centuries-old culinary art form called Shohasco. So it starts in the, you know, product input of high-quality product, the butchering of it, um, and the resting and preparing, simply seasoning and slow roasting. And the unique thing is that is a very... Um, uh, I would say, very strong skill that it takes. It's a lot of skills in one. So you're taking a chef that has those attributes, basically a butcher, uh, and then a, a grill master, and then you're asking them to do one other thing. Then they go out and serve that cut to a guest. So I tell everybody we have a fast, casual operating model. We just uh, customize to a plate versus a bowl or a burrito or whatever the thing you do. We have more SKUs, so that, that simple model of three roles in one really does two things. Uh, during a busy night, I always like to say, if you're next to a pier, the kitchen's you know, 15 people in the kitchen. There's KDS. There's people calling tickets. There's assembly work. It's a lot. It's a beautiful thing, by the way. Ours, uh, All of our chefs our 15 chefs are basically in a dining room serving a guest along with our servers, our primary servers, our back servers. So our restaurant's full of people just looking after people. So that distinctive difference operationally just takes one big lever of complexity out and drives real productivity with basically a lot less people. And as you know, our turn times are also about an hour. <laughs> so the immediacy pays off for the guest gives them full control, and it keeps it simple. And it's protein-based, which is even more dynamic. So we take big risks when we do it. So I always tell everybody, this model sounds simple, but a lot of people lose a lot of money in this business. We've just done it for 45 years, and we, we know the culinary art form, and we really invest heavily in training, skills, and development, and finding the right people for the role, because ultimately it's the guest we're trying to please. But the operating model, like you said, the structural advantage is that we just are much more productive. And probably the mm-hmm. most powerful part is the guest gets all the benefit. And that's where, we're why it's so targeted and powerful. And yes, it boy, it, it shows up in the versus the very best in class, fast, casual, you know, our, our restaurant level margins are about 700 basis points, the very, very best in class, um, full service. And I'm talking, when I say best in the class, you know, you got Darden, you've got you know, Texas roadhouse, uh, we you know, close to a thousand basis points uh, more productive so it's it's pretty powerful not just I would say in the labor but it also goes down into what I just explained also in the cost of sales for protein centric brand to run you know 28 to sub 28 percent cost of sales is pretty pretty strong our prime cost total prime cost is about between 50 and 52 percent it's a pretty awesome model
1: yeah <laughs> for sure and uh, I'd imagine Uh, The cooks make more if they're, you know, also participating in the tips and in the tip pool. And then, you know, I'd imagine that also contributes to to the very low turnover that you see.
2: Yeah, Mike, you you hit the head. So it's a skilled role, but we can train it. it. It's a lot of training. So it also broadens our audience because it's an aspirational role. And yes, uh, we pay actually great minimum wage. We pay for chef's go. You know, as you know, wage isn't uh, only just uh, tip credit. So these guys make more than tip credit most of the time, and they get tips. And we have some states with no tip credit. So we'd like to say, look, labor uh, is an investment. We just where it matters and they, they, they make great money and they learn great skills. And by the way, it's very rewarding. And I go back to when you find the right person, the right skills and they mature in that and they're serving a guest, it's really proud. If you're a chef, you love what you make and you serve it and you, you get the satisfaction from the guest right there. And if not, they'll fix it right away. So they meet to see again. So that's where it plays to the culture and to your point, the retention. It's very enjoyable for them and it's fun to watch and great to, to see them uh, in their art form. It's uh it's
1: exciting. Yeah, I'd imagine that's rewarding being able to see your your guests actually enjoy the food that you're you're cooking, right? Yep. Instead of sitting back in the line wondering,
2: hey, I made the plate, how are they liking the food? You know, when I used to cook, I used to ask, Hey, how's their, how's the guest? Or they have do they like me? So now you get a and the chef walk would go around and you know, see the table. I would come out and talk to tables. But now today to know that our chefs are always in the dining room. That's where they should be. You know, are they anyhow.
1: It's fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of it, for sure. Um, it's still early days, but how's the partnership with Bain Capital going so far?
2: Sure. I tell you, we're uh, thrilled. Uh, their engagement, uh, one, the cultural alignment, I would say. This is what, when we went through the process with them, we chose Bain, uh, to be frank. We pursued them because the cultural alignment. We knew who they were. We knew what they had to offer getting their attention was always the biggest thing. We're a small brand. Look, they're a big company, mass experience, but we're glad to at least have their attention, get it, and then go through the process with them. And going through the uh, whole diligence actually validated uh, why we wanted to partner with them. So I said it's early days of September, but I tell what, we're uh, from day one. They've been engaged with our entire team. Uh, we went to Brazil, had our first board meeting. The entire team came, which was a lot of fun. And just, we, we communicate on WhatsApp, the Fogo Mundo, we call it the Fogo Communication Channel. What's up there? And that's all by the team, the general managers and managers. We don't do it. We just get to see it. Uh, they blew up and loved it. Uh, whenever Bane people are in our restaurants, that goes wild, you know, socially uh, goes viral within our own communication platforms, which we love. So they're connected with the team already. Um Again, we'll have our global leadership conference coming up uh, this next week in San Antonio with all our international partners, all our GMs and sales managers and the Bain teams coming to it, which, again, just shows their commitment to their portfolio companies, their engagement uh, from the tip of the spear to the executive team. I couldn't say anything more that we're just excited about this next chapter of of growth with Bain Capital. Really, really excited.
1: Um, And can you comment on, on when they would like to take the company public?
2: Sure. I, you know, I would say they're long. They, they, they know the business uh, we're both mutually aligned that look, let's just build a business and we'll know the right time. I think that's the way we, we approach it. But I would say this personally, I, you know, after we've been for two years trying to S1, I just told the team, look for the next 20, 24 months, let's just keep continuation of our brand. So when you look back, you know, five years, six years, you keep going, look, we're, everything we're telling you we've already achieved and we can show you a clear path. So for us, you know, we'll have plenty of new restaurants, a lot more restaurants ramping. We'll hit some key milestones, uh, upcoming. And I'd like to time that by time we go public or close to if Bain's uh, ready and we're in alignment, obviously, but we'll have our restaurants in the next two or three years. We'll have more new restaurants ramping than our core. Um, we'll have three year visibility, which you already have today, three visibility to pipeline, um, We'll have over 10,000 team members. We'll be close to our first billion in revenue and uh, we'll be close to our 50th year anniversary. So all those things are really big for a small company that's looking to the next 50 years. And we know we have a very clear plan for the next 30 years of growth that our algorithm, long term algorithm of 10 10 to 15% earnings growth, we feel very comfortable. We're achieving that better. We still feel like the next 25, 30 years we have visibility of that. So that's what's great. By the way, it's all free cash flow. Our cash flow generation, we grow organically. We always have. So, you know, we're not trying to grow into earnings. We are driving earnings uh, and our G&A leverage is all improving. As we talked about before, our brand building is also just coming to light. So our tailwind is only going to get stronger. But we want to just make sure our value creation plan is all in place. We're aligned with Bain. And, you know, really focus, discipline, growth. And when we're ready,
1: uh, I'll call you first and let you know. I appreciate it. Um, Let's get into the development plans. Um, How many restaurants do you have today? What's the split between company owned and franchised? And and what do you think the preferred split is? Sure.
2: So right now we're 85 restaurants uh, at the end of the year globally. 11 were franchised. So, you know, franchise is everything besides Brazil and the U.S. We're from Brazil. Uh, a Brazilian company growing in the U.S., and now we're planting flags internationally with really strong operating and strategic partners. We're not trying to open a bunch of restaurants. We're trying to find a great partner that loves our brand like us, who wants to operate and execute more long-term and have facilities. So we like to say we're leveraging now the Americas. Uh, we got Canada through Central, South America lined up. We've got our first partner in Asia opening up. And then uh, we've got, already got a partner in the Middle East who's growing, and we've signed a partner in, in Turkey. So we feel like the major international markets that align with our brand that we know uh, will do well, will basically grow organically there. And you'll start to see those come up, uh, through South America Central. But I'd say the proper mix for us, uh, we go, look, it's going to be 10 years, but I would say five years from now, you might be opening, we might be opening just as many international capital light restaurants as we are domestically. But really the cash generation is going to be from our domestic growth. But this to us is about uh, brand positioning. Today, we're the category leader in this space. We're kind of leading the category. And then really our view is these strategic cities we're going to is about being a category leader globally. We're already an international brand. We're not concerned about international We're just basically growing organically international like we have been doing for 26 years in America. So I think the mix long term will probably, you know, when you get, you know, fully built out, it's 30, 30 percent international franchise. But as you know, we also think opportunistically that some point now in the future could also be an opportunity to buybacks, strategic buybacks as well. Uh, uh, That's how we think of it right now. We're using our our focus. Is our free cash flow is really uh, driving strong returns in America and Brazil. Uh, Brazil is growing organically, so is America.
1: Yep. And the international business, you know, obviously it's very high margin, which is nice. And, and I, I get, I'd assume you it allows you to grow a little bit faster. You have less headaches in terms of regulation
2: you're cattle, everything you know on the balance sheet just gets stronger and look one reason we want to go public and you know we want uh, we feel very good you know bain uh, we're aligned with bain on value creation but look post uh, public and bain's monetization you know we always look to the future and this is why we always say we, we'd love to just be uh, an alpha in somebody else's portfolio and just really we get to that organic growth like we're talking about curve you know, six, seven, eight years from now, we'll be, we should be buying back shares, issuing dividends and growing at 15%. And that's what we think we can do if we do this right. Uh, along with, like you said, the international mix, the capital uh, light piece, along with our you know, all that just adds up to high efficient uh, capital generation and just uh, strong earnings growth long term.
1: So. What's the uh, development plans for this year? How do smaller units fit into that plan? And what do you think the total white space opportunity is?
2: Sure. So, I, you know, I'd say this this year we have uh, obviously the pipelines full. I think we put an announcement. Out. We got visibility through 26, actually some in, uh, through 26, but definitely 24, 25 is pretty much not done. We say we're going to open 10 to 15 units a year. We opened 11 last year, accompanying four international. So we'd see that a- algorithm staying. So we, we feel very confident we'll achieve that. Um, but our small unit, first one uh, in the U.S., we opened the first one in, Bre- in uh, Rio in uh, Rio uh, Baja, and a mall was 5,000 square foot. It's doing really well. The returns in Brazil on that are doing tremendous. Um, we have international partners. They'll be opening anywhere from four to 6,000 square foot units based off that unit. And then the return hurdles on that uh, initially are strong. Then we're going to open our first domestic 5,000 square foot unit at the World Trade Center. So uh, you're going to be invited at to see that, see what that experience looks like. We're opening a 6,000 square foot this year in downtown Seattle along with a rooftop lounge on a 10th floor. So again, driving different occasion, leveraging the same asset, uh, great economics in that box, huge demand that we look to capture. So we go back to the site is the most important, the demographic and the demand. And then we really work hard on the economics to make sure that we our minimum hurdle is a 40% return. So all that has to go through that rigorous process to get the underwriting. Uh, good news is, in 23, all of our new classes of restaurants, we've averaged about 57% return. So are outperforming our demand hurdle. We're uh, investing where we say we're going to invest on average about $4 million and we're, we're driving great returns. So we see more of that, and uh, the proof points of the smaller box just goes back to how deep we can penetrate an urban market. As you know, we have an 18,000-square-foot um, location in Midtown doing really well. So going down the World Trade Center is another proof point of capture rate and brand leverage. And then um, we're excited about that. And so that leads to the white space question. In the S-1, we have, you know, it. I would say we'd say we'll have well over 300 in the white space. We think long term we could be 600. But I go back to it's still early stage, but we still feel very good about um, how we're building. And remember, we don't have prototypes we're not constrained by prototype. I don't need three acres of land and an 8,500 square foot box. We think about, hey, how much capital, how, what's the demand, how much capital we should spend and minimum, we should minimum it two, two times uh, revenue to investment. And how do I drive the best experience? And that's the creative part we use. That's where we really work hard at to give the guests the best experience where they most likely are going to be gravity. And how does that map out for what we call the market planning so we can build a brand and leverage the brand equity and improve our asset utilization at the same time. And all that has been 11 years of work. And I'll give you an example that in LA market, we've just opened our 10th location. So that's the biggest market, most saturated. Uh, And that same market there, I think there's over 22 cheesecakes. So we're not trying to over-penetrate, but that market, every time we open a unit, we have record sales in that market. So it goes back to the awareness is growing. Since we're convenient, trial is growing in frequency, so that's all part of the the strategy of development, yeah. if you would
1: brand building. Yeah, the uh, you know, as as you know, I, I visited the Willowbrook location. It's beautiful. So so it sounds like you don't have a, a you know a, a prototype, which is which is pretty cool. Um, is do you use an AUV number, or do you talk about a sales per square foot, or maybe kind of both, just for you know for our listeners? Sure. So.
2: Well, so generically, look, we you've seen in 23 and we shared it at ICR. Look, we—you know, 2019, we're averaging 7.7. 7. We're averaging about 10.4 million right now. Our demand hurdles, we're looking at uh, demand of well over 8 million before we build a restaurant. So we're not trying to just plant flags. We're just brand building to make sure that those restaurants uh, do high volume. Uh, a lot of work goes into that, and this is why we... You know our, our pipeline takes three years to develop, and now we have three years of visibility. And you know everything we just spoke to uh, has been working; it's been in the works for eleven years. Nobody just showed up and did it. And again, for twenty-six years in America, and for brand leverage, uh, forty-five years. So all that is just a continuation, that we like to say incrementally improving. So if you think about that, uh, in two thousand nineteen, or even before ten years ago, our restaurants averaged about fourteen thousand square foot. Our 18,000 square foot location in Manhattan, now we're averaging about between seven and 8,000 a foot, and we're doing higher volumes. So uh, asset utilization's gone up. We've invested a lot of design and uh, engineering around redoing our entire kitchen to put our attributes up front, the culinary attributes. You see the peninsula grill up front. We've layered some of the materials, simplified our back-of-the-house operation built beautiful bar fogos. Even if you've been to Paramus, we've got the next level lounge. So we use, we've gone from about 50% of our space being back of the house to about 20 to 25%. So our whole, uh, revenue per square footage has just gone up, you know, by 50%, but we focus on revenue and experiences in space. So we like to say we transform space with great design to great to make experiences, uh, more enjoyable. The, the operating model over his dove where we lacked before there were big boxes and the experience was lacking. So that's what we've transformed the last six years in the new box. Like you said, Willowbrook and all that, those are timeless, warm and approachable designs. And they're more in a more suitable environment. What I love is you get to see the grill and the chef do their art form and come out and serve you that that's the part that we love. So.
1: Very cool. Um, you know, we touched on the low, low turnover rates uh, that you have. So, what what percentage of the new store GMs are brought in from other Fogo Fogo restaurants?
2: That's a great question. Uh, every one of them. That's awesome. <laughs> So we we promote from within. Even if we bring outside talent, we look they gotta want to be part of it to join the culture, be part of it because our model is different. It's not like any other restaurant model. You've got to learn the guest flow. You got to understand how the model works. It's it's very nuanced. So once you get it. It's a maturity curve, and I would say an experience curve to get up there to proficiency. Now we have high potential talent from outside that gets it really quick. So it's really dependent on an individual. But I'd say, remember, our GMs average, you know, with us are over ten years. Our area directors are over twenty years. Our regional directors have been with us thirty. So that retention rate, that skill set, and those are those we call anybody above GM are mentors. So that mentoring is really critical, and that's why we say is we don't our industry, we talk about labor. I always talk about labor as an investment. We never talk about labor as a cost. It's a percentage of the P&L, but we, every, the way we think of it as our first dollar in revenue goes to, to people. That's training, hiring, staffing, and just what you said, how do you become a GM? You got to invest in it every day. And because we're growing, we can pull talent up with, from within. And it's really exciting to see. And I tell you, we talked about development. So getting back to human capital retention, we don't build our human, we don't build a site pipeline until we have visibility for three years of our GM pipeline. The GM has to have succession underneath them. The assistant manager has to have team members stepping up to their role. And so the continuity of leadership at every level cultivates our culture, uh, the experience, and then we open a restaurant with, that's what we say. First dollar goes to people, people, Second dollar revenue goes to guest experience, third dollar, Hey, what are we doing in our community our local store? And then we always say what's left is we'll go back to Bain and ask permission through a rigorous process to reinvest uh, in a new restaurant. That's kind of how we, we approach the business. And by the way, our GMs know that model. That's why revenue is the most important thing.
1: <laughs> That's uh, very smart. And, you know, I work with publicly traded companies, so I, I don't, I don't think they have the luxury maybe of, of planning out their people. Plans before their actual development plan. So, uh, kudos to you and the team. That that's very cool and not something uh, I've I've I don't think I've ever heard. Uh, and I've been, been in this business for quite some time. Just as you know, it's
2: we're in hospitality. People is our most important metric. It's that's the thing that I think people forget. You can't engineer that out and say you've hit your margin. Well you got to fix your model and you still really need people to do it. If you take people out, that's fine. Then go into vending machine business.
1: That's awesome. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Let's uh, change gears a little bit. How are you planning to boost same-store sales and traffic this year? You have any, anything new in the pipeline? Sure.
2: Well, I would just say you know, we've got innovation that keeps coming. So the seasonal stuff we do, obviously our indulgent platform, we rolled out right before COVID with our dry age tomahawk took off like crazy and we hit pandemic. Now we had all, then we had Wagyu and the pipeline. And again, we did the opposite during, uh, during COVID. We didn't take things away. We actually added Wagyu and went upstream and just said, look, we're going to focus on hospitality. We didn't change our dining rooms. We just focused on that. So that platform indulgent took off during COVID. Uh, we expanded it, we added ribeye strip. And then, um, that platform just again, uh, really strong. So if we think about that ramping, it's ramping into this year, every year it's getting better. Uh, We're going to add a new attribute to that. So we're testing this year of whole fresh seafood. Again, our culinary attribute of slow roasting over open flame uh, creates a salty bark because all we do is salt simply about how we butcher, we rest the meat, we age it properly and then slow roast it with salt. So that's the craveability that salty bark is a culinary attribute we own what we want to own is fresh seafood is doing the same thing with oil and salt and just blistering fish. So blistering and salty bark are those craveable attributes that drive differentiation. So seafood's our next big unlock, fresh seafood excited about that. We're looking at Brenzino, but I'll keep you posted on that. So we think that's another, I would say a frequency driver, another way to indulge and, or just have a pescatarian. Yeah. And you know, this Mike. The our product line, no menu. We, we can accommodate any diet tribe. whether you're vegetarian, you're keto, you're pescatarian. Uh, we're just rounding that out, and that's part of the joy. And again, that goes back to our demographic, 87% millennial, Gen Z, uh, 42% female, a very ethnic uh, uh, group. And we have a family segment of it, too, about 26% of our use is family. So all that demographic's opposite of steakhouse. So when you drive this innovation, it goes back to Cajun celebration again food discovery all the time within what we do so that's a ramp indulgent ramp and then we we do um we're doing wine dinners this is only our second year this is starting our third year in 24 wine dinners those are growing immensely we do four year we're probably going to eventually go to six but those wine dinners and our bar events we do monthly are bringing in uh about 40 to 50 percent of the users are new new people new to our uh, new trial So that's a huge, I would say, strategic advantage of driving occasions for somebody who was aware but hadn't tried. So it becomes an entry point of trial. And again, you take those bar events of wine and Wagyu, whiskey and dry age, or you go to, uh, you know, our uh, Veek wine dinner, which is priced, you know, value pricing compared to everybody else's wine dinner. And you get the full compliment, strong value, but you learn about great South American wines or great California wines. And those, those are still ramping and they're meaningful because as you know, our, our liquor mix is about 14% because of our velocity, right? We turn a table in an hour, but our bar Fogo platform's new and growing. So 14% liquor mix and our new restaurants like Willowbrook and you tried that and Paramus they're averaging close to 20. So the new design, the new training. So we know that's a ramp lift, our private, uh, I would say, uh, large group is about uh, 14% as well. We have peers doing 20%, 25%. So we're just now starting on that with a new design, a better space, new, new equipment, and fully staffed sales team, which we staffed during the COVID. We totally ramped up with that and all that's paying off. So we think that's going to grow to about 20% as well. So all that is you know, tailwinds to the brand. Um, so excited about that that side of the innovation.
1: Yeah, good stuff. Everybody loves a good wine dinner. I know I do. That's right.
2: By the way, South America wine's all half price. You got to try a bottle of Milakala. It's 97 rated. It's half price. It's best way best way to have wine. So there you go. All day happy hour on South America wine.
1: All right. I have to check that out. That's good stuff. All right. I think we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, thanks again. Where, where can the audience go to find a nearby Fogo and what social media platforms is the brand big on?
2: So we're big on Instagram. Again, brand love is big. And again, what I love, it's our, you'll see our consumer's voice, uh, advocates of our brand. So just, you know, you can see a lot of brand on socially. So uh, obviously uh, Instagram is big for us. Uh, and then I would just say for best way is just go Fogo.com. And, you know, we'll put all the latest news and where we're going next and uh, love, love to host you there. Look forward to seeing you, Mike. You're we, going to get an invite to all these openings opening up, but uh, you're welcome anytime. But uh, appreciate your time and thanks for all you do for our industry. We uh, always appreciate your insights.
1: Sure thing. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, that World Trade Center opening for yeah. sure. I'd like to thank the audience for tuning in. If you like the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Check back in a couple of weeks. I'll be having a discussion with executive consultant, Ray Johnson.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like,